Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I can't remember the last time I felt as tired as I do this morning uh, because we had the Chili Bowl yesterday. And uh, so we played two hours of, of football, and uh, I'm reminded that I'm not 20 anymore. All right, so uh, if I fall over while I'm up here, then uh, just pick me back up and we'll continue uh, where we left off. So had a good, uh, had a good, good time with the men yesterday, um, some unbelievers among us, and a chance to share the gospel with them. And so uh, please pray for, for fruit from that, uh, that ministry and that opportunity, uh, but um, it's good, good, the good day the Lord gave us together. So first of all, chapter 5, and let's begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read uh, down to the end of the book, because I want you to catch the larger context of what's taking place here in, uh, in these verses. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Don't you look forward to that study when we come to it? I put you under the oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the chance to, to dive into the scriptures and to consider your will for our lives. So let us set aside distractions and focus on what you have said here. And may our time uh, this morning cause us to reflect uh, on our spiritual life and need for growth. And may it uh, change the way we organize our schedules uh, and our lives and the things we do because we want to bring every aspect of our life into conformity with your word. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in the portion of 1 Thessalonians where Paul is bringing the letter to a conclusion. And he does so through a a series of rapid-fire exhortations. And you probably noticed that as we read through those verses, how he moves from from one piece of instruction to the other. And the the passage we're looking at, the verse we're looking at, is specifically verse 14, where he urges believers to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
and to be patient with them all. And so that's the passage we want to study this morning. I trust our time will be helpful in, uh, in this verse. Now, as we come to this verse, I think it's helpful to set the table with a handful of observations before getting into the verse itself. So I want to observe, before we kind of get into this, by way of introduction, I want to observe six things uh, about, this particular, about this particular verse and this particular context. So first of all, it's helpful to be re- remind ourselves of the connection between this section, we'll say verses 12 to the end of the passage, between this section and the, the previous section. So right previously, the Apostle Paul had been addressing end-time events, starting clear back in chapter 4, verse 13, and going all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. He was dealing with matters like the rapture and the day of the Lord. But he swiftly turns his attention to other matters beginning in verse 12. And so as we asked last week, what's the relationship between what he says in the previous section on end time events and the relationship now between what he's, what he's giving by instructions here in these verses. And I think the answer lies in verse 11. Verse 11 is sort of the, the hinge where the passage swings, right? Because he finishes talking about end time events and he concludes by saying this, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so now he turns into these instructions, and especially in verses 12 to 14, he turns to two groups of people that need to be built up in in the faith and encouraged. The first is those who serve as, as elders or pastors in verses 12 and 13, right? Those who are over you in the Lord to esteem them and to respect them. And then the second group, he's going to turn to, to, to the members as a whole, that we have the responsibility as a whole to admonish and to encourage and to help those who are in our assembly uh, who, have, who have spiritual needs. The second thing about this passage that's worth noting is the individuals to whom Paul is writing. Right? So in verse 12, he addresses the Thessalonians by calling them brothers. And he's noting that the, the responsibility that they have to esteem and to respect those who are over them in the Lord. And as the passage moves on to verse 14, he addresses the same individual once again calling them brothers. He says, and we urge you, brothers. Now the reason this is important is because this exhortation of verse 14, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, it seems like something that would ordinarily be the responsibility of those who serve as pastors. But what we see in this passage is Paul is not addressing pastors. If he wanted to, he could have. But instead, he's addressing every member in the congregation. And he's saying every member in the congregation has this responsibility to admonish and to encourage and to help their fellow believers. And so I think what we find in verse 14 is what we might call every member ministry. That every member has the responsibility to do these things with one another in the body of Christ. It's not a task that, that lies solely at the feet of pastors, although that is part of their responsibility, but the duty is for every Christian. See, when God saved us, he adopted us into his family, and with being adopted into his family came certain obligations of being part of the family. Right? You remember 
remember growing up and in, in your home and you were asked to help out around the house. Right? This was, I don't know if it was your case, but it was a case in my house. And, and we lived in, in sort of a rural area and we had a, a very long driveway, probably longer than the, the, the church driveway here. And so we never took our trash out to the end of the, the, the driveway like, like normal people do. No, we had an annual pass to the local landfill. Now, is anybody, is that foreign? Okay, a few people may have had that experience. Okay, I, it was normal for me growing up, right? So when I got my driver's license, it then became my job every two or three weeks to load up the station wagon with the, la- with the trash from the last three weeks and drive it to the local landfill. And I'm telling you, I hated that responsibility. And we lived in Connecticut, which was a liberal state, which they recycled everything. But I would be so mad, I would back up to one slot, throw it all in the, in the same dumpster and let, let them sort it out, right? Yeah, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a rough existence. And you're probably thinking, well, we should probably call CPS on his parents because of how bad he had it. And I had to do other things too, like, like mow the grass and shovel the deck. And every Saturday morning, my dad would wake me up and say, now, don't forget to mow the grass today, as if, as if I would actually forget. But I knew that if he didn't tell me, that I could at least say that I, I forgot, right? Now, at some point as youngsters, we've probably all asked this question in frustration. Why do I have to do all these things? Okay, you guys are you're slave drivers. You're, what, what, why do I have all these tasks? And the real simple answer to this question is, well, you're part of the family, and, that, and with being part of the family comes certain obligations as a family member. And that's essentially what Paul is, is saying here. Look, you're, you're part of the church family, right? You're part of the body of Christ, and with that comes these obligations to admonish, to encourage, and to help your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the third thing we want to note about this passage is that the sphere, in, we want to notice the, the sphere in which this ministry was, was practiced among the, the believers here in Thessalonica. So, in other words, what I mean by that is the, the specific sphere in which they were to encourage and admonish and, and help was among the other brothers and sisters there in Thessalonica. Like, if other churches or other believers needed help and assistance, I'm sure the Thessalonians could have, have ministered to them. But the specific sphere that they were to carry these, these instructions out was within the context of the church in Thessalonica. Right, if you were to go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 1, you see that this letter is written to the church, singular, of the Thessalonians, plural. And it's in this context that they have the responsibility to, to carry out these, these tasks. And this is important because it, 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 it relates to how we think about these responsibilities to, to admonish, to encourage, and to help. Okay? Our, our duties and our, our commitments are not to any believer out there that we come across, and we want to help them if we can, but our specific responsibilities are to the members of, of this congregation. Like, these are the individuals that we've promised to admonish and to encourage and to, to help. This is, the, this is the congregation the Lord has given us. And this is, as we think about these things here in verse 14, these are the people that we should think about carrying those commands out with. Now, fourthly, notice that, that this type of ministry, admonishing, encouraging, and helping, assumes an intimate knowledge of, with one another. 
Okay, you're not going to walk up to a, a complete stranger and, and admonish them. Say, you know, you seem a little undisciplined and, and out of order. You know, you need to bring it back into line. Consider yourself admonished. No, that's not what we're going to do. The, that would be entirely, fruitless, entirely fr- unfru- uh, unfruitful. But in the context where believers put forth the effort, effort to build strong relationships, it's in that context that things like admonishing, encouraging, and helping are a normal part of the life of the believer. What was that, number four? Okay, let's go to number five then. Okay. Fifthly, if God's people are living as they should, then these responsibilities in verse 14 should be reciprocal. In other words, we need to be encouraging, admonishing, and helping. But there will be times in our life where, where we're the ones who need the admonition, the encouragement, and the help. And if the, the body of believers is acting as it should, there should be a mutual building up of one another where we're practicing these things and they're reciprocal in their nature. We're going back and forth with these kinds of, of things. And we might say that it's a, a two-way street. Now, sixthly and lastly, notice the, that, that every believer, okay, notice this about verse 14, that every believer's needs are different. Okay, right? So, so he, he gives three types of people here. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. But not all of these people need the same thing. And if we don't have the sensitivity and the wisdom to deal with people according to their need, then we can do great harm to their spiritual walk. When we see, when we minister to people, we need to be thinking and asking, what is the particular need that this person has? And then use wisdom in, in building them up in the Lord. If we misdiagnose the problem, then we'll misprescribe the needed medicine. And so it's important for us to ask, well, is this person idle? Is this person faint-hearted? Or is this person weak? And how do I minister to them in their particular situation? So with these introductory thoughts in mind, let's now move into verse 14. And here's what we're going to see this morning. That you and I have the responsibility as members of the body of Christ to patiently build up our brothers and sisters in Christ according to their specific need. Okay, let me say that one more time. You and I have the responsibility as members of the body of Christ to patiently build up our brothers and sisters in Christ according to their specific need. Now, as we work through these verses, here's how we'll organize it. Okay, we'll go person and need, person and need, person in need, and then the overarching need that he mentions to be patient with one another. Okay, so let's start with the first person, and it is the idle person. Okay, so in verse 14, Paul says to admonish the person who is idle. Now, is the case with each one of these words, the idle, the the, um, faint-hearted, and the weak, there is a bit of explanation that needs to, to happen in order to understand who exactly these people are. So in our minds, um, the idle person is the person who sits around lazily and should be doing something much more profitable. But the word is probably bigger than that here in verse 14. Okay, if you're carrying an ESV translation, you'll notice that there's a footnote uh, attached to this word idle where we see that it can also be, uh, also be translated as, 
as disorderly or undisciplined. Okay, and if you're like me, you're like, okay, how does one word mean idle and possibly mean disorderly and undisciplined? And the answer is that when this word is used in the active voice, it means disorderly or undisciplined, or it's a military term of someone who steps out of line or steps out of rank, and they would be uh, discharged for disorderly conduct, okay, or not doing what they are supposed to do. But when it's used in the passive voice, it means that it refers to someone who's not doing something that they should be doing. So the word kind of has a, a, an active and a passive sense there. Now, likely the reason that it's translated at, as idle here in 1 Thessalonians is because in 2 Thessalonians, idleness was their specific problem, right? Remember, Paul in our scripture reading addresses the fact that if you don't work, you should not eat. And he's, con- he's condemning those who, who will not step up to the plate, provide for their own families, and, and work. So he's condemning a sense of idleness here, and that may be why that some translations use the word idleness. Okay? But, but whether it's idle or undisciplined or, or unruly, it can, it can mean all of those things. The main thing we want to notice about this type of person in verse 14 is this. It's, it's their persistence in sin that puts them in this particular category. Okay? So when he says admonish the idol, it's because of their sin that they're in this category. Now, we'll move on to two other categories of the faint-hearted and the weak, but in those two individuals, it's not necessarily their sin that puts them in their category. So the person in this category has sinned, and they need admonished in relationship to their sin, right? Okay, so that's the person. Now, let's move on to their need. They need, as the text says here in verse 14, admonition. The word was already used in chapter, uh, in, ver- in chapter 5, verse 12, as a duty of the pastors to their congregations, right? They says, they're over you in the Lord and they admonish you. But here it appears as the duty of every believer to admonish the unruly person. The, the word admonish simply means to warn. Now, sometimes it can have the idea of reprimanding, but it's this idea of correcting someone who, because of sin, is on the wrong path. There are times in our life when we either need to receive this type of warning or we need to administer this type of warning because of, of, of sin. Right? And so Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, you'll also remember in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the same thing is called for. When in Galatians 6, 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we shouldn't be surprised in the sense of what the Scriptures are, are, are asking and, and what the Scriptures are commanding here, because I think the Scriptures recognize there will be times when we are caught in a transgression or step out of line, and, and we're not living as we're supposed to. And the instruction here of, of, of Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, is that we would restore such individuals. And the idea there is similar to this admonition that is mentioned in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. And we also notice that Paul seems to think that believers are equipped to be able to handle this kind of thing. All right, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. And listen to what he says. 
and able to instruct one another. And that word instruct is the same word for our word admonish. So Paul seems to think that because of, 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 of being equipped by the Lord and the Holy Spirit and having a knowledge of Scripture, that believers should be capable of, of instructing and admonishing one another and building them up in this way. So this is the, the task to which you and I are called when we're engaging with individuals who are unruly or living in an undisciplined way. And it's this type of warning that is to call people back to living on the straight and narrow. Now, let's stop and let's think about this important Christian responsibility of admonishing the idol, as is mentioned in this passage. There are two questions that we want to ask here as we think about this. The first is this. What keeps us from this type of Christian responsibility? Okay, so what keeps us from admonishing one another in the Lord in order to, to build one another up? Well, let me recommend a few, a, few, uh, a few possibilities. One is this mindset of, it's not my job, right? Sometimes we have this mindset in Christianity that I, I'm supposed to stay in my own lane and not rebuke or admonish or correct anyone who steps out into, into, into sin, I think if we're honest, we look at scriptures and, and we can't honestly conclude that it's not my job to, to encourage one another and to build them up in the Lord and to admonish them in this way. A second reason why we're probably hesitant to carry out this kind of ministry is because of a lack of willingness on the part of the other person, right? So they're not really going to be interested in receiving this kind of, of admonition. So I'm reminded of what Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8 says. It says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a, reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. And so we've probably all had these particular situations where we we've went to, to admonish someone, and we walk away with an injury. Okay, maybe not physically, but emotionally, because the person was not ready to receive this kind of admonition. But it's the wise person here, it says in Proverbs, 7, or Proverbs 9, you rebuke him and he will love you for it. So one of the reasons we're hesitant is because of a lack of willingness on the other part. Sometimes we don't rebuke. Sometimes we don't admonish because we're not in a position spiritually ourselves to do so. Right? Like, I look at my own life of sin, and I look at their life of sin, and, and who am I in my current state to admonish this person? And so we have to sort of step back and say, well, this is not really my, not really my job or my time and place. Another reason why we often fail to admonish as we should is, we might say, a lack of genuine love for the other person. Okay? We love ourselves. We love comfort, we love acceptance, we love approval. And admonishing one another cuts against that acceptance and approval from other people. And so we find it much easier and much more self-loving to ignore sin than it is to address it. But I'm reminded of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer when he said this, Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke 
that calls a brother back from the path of sin. So sometimes the most loving thing we can do as brothers and sisters in Christ is what verse 14 tells us here, to admonish the idol and to warn them from the path of sin. Now let me ask a second question then. What keeps us from receiving this type of admonition? Okay, what keeps us from receiving this type of admonition? So the reality is, sometimes we're the ones who admonish, and sometimes we're the ones who receive the admonition, right? So in those situations where we're on the receiving end, what keeps us from receiving it? I think one of the things that keeps us from receiving it well is the belief that the Christian life is largely a solo journey. Okay? That, that it, it, we don't think about our sanctification and our walk with Christ as a community project, but we think I'm in this all by myself and everybody else just keep to themselves. But what we see in the New Testament is that one of the aspects of God's grace and work in our lives comes through the channels of other people to build us up in the Lord. So we can't believe and embrace Lone Ranger Christianity. Rather, sanctification is a community project. Okay, the second reason why we might not receive admonition well is really a lack of humility. Sometimes we're just not humble enough to hear that what we have done is wrong and needs correction. It's a, it's a wound to our pride when someone admonishes us, and it takes humility to recognize that and to change. Okay, so this is the first person and the first need. Admonish the idol. Let's move on to the second. He says, secondly, admonish the idol, and he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Okay, so who's the person here? First, let's talk about this person who is faint-hearted. The faint-hearted person really can be translated in this way. It is just the person who is discouraged. Now, what we need to notice about this person is that their discouragement is not necessarily the result of sin. Okay, sin could be the reason that they're discouraged, but in probably most cases, discouragement comes for some other reason than sin. So in this category, it's not that sin has put this person in this category, it's something else that has put them in this category. I mean, we, we encounter in Scripture, all over the pages of Scripture, people who are facing significant discouragement, right? So you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. And listen to what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, if that doesn't sound like discouragement, I don't know what does, but, but it's not Paul's sin that led him there. It was the circumstances and situations of his life. When you read the Psalms, you, you, you hear the language of the psalmist expressing discouragement in the, in the heart of, of difficulty. The Old Testament prophets were, were certainly difficult, right? They're, they're certainly discouraged. They, they had the difficult ministry of, of, of sharing a message from the Lord that in large part was not received. It was a discouraging ministry. Now, for, for many of us, it, it can be something like an ongoing trial. It can be the loss of a loved one. That may have been the case in 1 Thessalonians 4, right? He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep. And that may be why there's faint-hearted people in this congregation. 
We can be discouraged because of, of broken relationships. And we might say just about anything can be the cause of discouragement in our Christian life. And again, as we, as we notice here, sometimes we're the discouraged person and sometimes we're the ones responsible for the encouragement. But there should be this mutual building up of one another based on our need. But here's the important thing, okay? Paul does not say, admonish the faint-hearted. Okay, he says, admonish the idle person or the unruly person, encourage the faint-hearted. Because if you give admonition to the one who is discouraged, you might wound him entirely and cause him even more discouragement. So, so what Paul's saying is you need to know the situation that your brother in Christ is in so that you can administer the proper medicine to help him in his need. And so what we see here is, is, is the need of this person is encouragement. Okay? These people need to be persuaded not to give up. In the midst of difficult circumstances, these people need to hear that, that, that God is not dead, that, that they can keep trusting in him, that he has always cared for them and he always will care for them, and that he has a purpose and plan for the trials that they are experiencing. Because in the midst of these hardships, in the midst of ongoing difficulties, it can feel like there will be no end, and it can feel like God is, is silent in these situations. And so that's where the encouragement of other brothers and sisters in Christ builds them up to keep going in their faith. You know, I think 2 Timothy is a good example of what it looks like to minister to someone who is discouraged. In fact, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. And most most people believe that 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter uh, just before he dies for the cause of Christ. And in this, you kind of get this raw, in this letter, you get like raw emotion by the Apostle Paul. Start in chapter 4, verse 9, and just listen to the situations and circumstances that Paul's facing, and and there is a sense of discouragement that you pick up. He tells Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas... In love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Have you ever been abandoned or deserted in a relationship? Okay, that's, that's Paul's situation here in verse 10. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dematia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for the ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus, a Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. He goes on more discouraging here, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But he says, The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil, every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 
To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In those words, you can hear the Apostle Paul's hardship and discouragement. But turn back to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy and you read these words. In verse 15, he says this, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Okay, so again, he's, he's expressing this discouragement, and he's, it's, the, the, the forsaking of Paul is so massive that he uses an expression like this in verse 15, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now, certainly not every single person in Asia turned away from, but it, the, the departure is so massive that he uses expressions like this. But notice what he says in verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, as probably was the case with all in Asia. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Do you know what we need in our lives? Is we need someone like this guy, Manasseh That in the midst of all the desertion and all the, the, the difficulties and all the hardships, he says, he often refreshed me. Was not ashamed of my situation, Paul says, he actively sought me out and built me up in the faith. So in the midst of the discouragement, this is the type of individual that we need. Someone who will build us up. And when our brothers and sisters in Christ face the type of discouragement that Paul's facing, this is the type of person we need to be for them. Okay? An encouragement to them. Now, let's stop again and ask this question. What keeps us from encouraging other people like we should. Okay? Why is it that we do not encourage and build one another up as we should? Well, first of all, let me suggest this. We are often too self-focused to notice the needs around us. Okay? We, 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 we pack our schedules jammed, packed with activities and, and work-related, fun-related tasks. We lead extremely busy lives and we're consumed with our own needs and our own desires and our own goals in our own world. Which makes us entirely incapable of identifying the people around us that are in need of encouragement. But if we slow down and we looked around and we began to consider a world outside of our own, we would see that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who need to be built up because they are discouraged. Okay, so we're too often self-focused. Secondly, it's much easier to tear down than it is to build up. It takes a lot of active work to build up. Now, I've used this analogy before, but it's fitting for this idea, I think. Okay, if you're going to do some sort of remodeling project, before the, before the, the building up process starts, there is the demolition process, right? And the demolition is the process, the part that anyone can do, okay? I could use some help on my remodeling my bathroom or my kitchen. Is there any way you could help me out? Yeah, I can come knock down a wall, okay? I have enough pent-up anger that, that I, can, I can take down a wall, maybe, maybe in half a day even, okay? 
But then when it comes time to like building up, well, that's when you need the skill, the people who have the intentionality, and the experience. And those people seem to be far, few and far between, right? So you've got this, this dynamic where it's, it's similar in, the, in, in, in life. It's much easier to say something critical. It's much easier to see the faults of individuals. It's much easier to tear them down. But it takes, it takes attention and skill and wisdom to think about how to effectively build one another up in the body of Christ. And so one of the reasons we don't do this effectively enough is because we don't stop and, and, and give the attention necessary to doing so. Okay, but the passage clearly tells us here that this is our responsibility as believers to encourage the faint-hearted. Okay, so we've talked about person one and what we're supposed to do, what their need is. We're to admonish the unruly. Then person two, we're to encourage the faint-hearted. And then lastly, the third person, he says this, we are to help the weak. We are to help the weak. Now, this is the person that perhaps there's the least amount of clarity as to what Paul's talking about here with the weak person. The word weak can be physical sickness. But here I think he's talking about spiritual you know, problems. And so I don't think it's, it's someone who's physically sick, but someone who's spiritually weak. The word weak also appears in passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 where the, 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 there's a matter of conscience and the person whose conscience won't allow them to partake in something is referred to as the weaker brother. But even here, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Okay? Uh, rather, I think the person who is weak is the person who is basically at the end of their rope in terms of Christianity. They're ready to give up. They're ready to throw in the towel. Because what Paul says to these, what we're supposed to do with these individuals is we are to help them. But the word here, help, is really this idea of, of be devoted to them. It is to prop them up or, or don't leave them alone. Don't leave their side. I mean, I, I think about the individual who maybe on a, on a football field gets injured and then two other players have to come and essentially carry this individual off the field. And the reality is that some of us spiritually are, are in those situations at times where we don't think we're going to make it. We're going to throw in the towel because we're wondering, we have no idea if it's even worth persevering in the faith. And what we need is a couple of brothers or sisters in Christ to come with their arms around us and, and, and help carry us to the finish line, as it were, so that we don't give up in our walk and faithfulness to Christ. Now, for these individuals who are weak, it, it may be an issue of sin, but sometimes it may just be a struggle that is, that is so significant that they can barely stand up underneath the pressure. And Paul says of these individuals that their need is that we help them. As I said, this, the literal translation of this word is that we be devoted to them, that we, we prop them up and never leave their side. Well, let's ask the question then. What keeps us from helping the weak people? What helps us, keeps us from, from helping them along to the, to the finish line? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's this. These types of people, they demand too much attention to help in any meaningful way. Right? They suck all the energy out of us, and so we can't possibly... Help them as they need help. You ever encounter this person? They can be exhausting. They can be time-consuming. And the fruit of your labor is 
sometimes if it is seen, it's seen in, 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 in small ways, and, and sometimes it's, it's very slow to develop. And sometimes as you help this person, they can even respond, and, and you can incur injury because of their, their situation. They don't respond well. And so we can conclude that, you know what, this, this just it, it isn't worth it for me to continue to help the person who is weak. I want to go help someone who in five minutes can be built up and, and on their own, not someone who in five years needs me to sort of continue to help them along and, and help them along. But that's not what Paul says here. He doesn't say pick out the people who need the least amount of help and bring them to the finish line, people who are already going to make it. No, he says, listen, identify those among you who are weak and, 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 and help them, be devoted to them. Now, lest we think that, that it's too hard to accomplish, I like the way Paul finishes the passage with this overarching need. Okay, so as we think about admonishing the idle and encouraging the faint-hearted and helping the weak, he finishes with this expression, right? Be patient with them all. He could have left that off and we would have been much better off, right? So just, just admonish and encourage and help as, as we have the time and the energy and, and as long as we want to do it, but we can eventually you know, say enough is enough. But he says, be patient with them all. In other words, this isn't going to work unless you cultivate in your life the patience necessary to, to, to work with these types of people. The word patience here is literally a word that is just long-suffering. Okay? We see this, the word used idea, right? So, so notice uh, three aspects or three, three realities about this idea of patience. Notice, first of all, that this is a character of God. All over the Old Testament, you see these phrases of God being referred to as being long-suffering and patient with his people. Okay? Uh, you remember the, the incident with the golden calf in, in Exodus chapter 32. Moses goes up to receive the, the laud, comes back down, and the people have, have erected a, a golden calf, and, and they're, they're worshiping this thing in, in a way that they would have done something like that, like the Egyptians would have when they were there. And God is, God is, is, a, is a just God, and he does, he does uh, deal out uh, consequences for sin. But in this context, we're surprised to hear what, what the Lord, how he describes himself in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He says this, The Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, he says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So in the midst of one of Israel's biggest failures, we have God described as a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, this is the God that we serve. He is a patient and long-suffering God. Just think of how he has dealt with us in our sin. He has not given us what we deserve, but he has given us Christ, and he's allowed to, to come to him. Okay? So, so God is described often as being patient or long-suffering. And as children of God, we want to resemble our Heavenly Father. 
right? So it's not uncommon uh, in family situations to hear this expression, you look just like your mom or you look just like your dad. What every kid wants to hear, right? That's their goal. When I grow up, I want to look just like mom or dad, okay? Uh, a few weeks ago, we were on a family bike ride, and, and uh, Blake has gotten to the point where uh, he rides his own bike on the back of, of my bike. And uh, of all of our kids, you know, two of them look like Julie, and one of them, unfortunately, looks like me. So, so we're riding together, and <laughs> Julie essentially, she's she just taking a picture, and she says, you guys are the same person, right? And, and uh, so I'm like, I, f- I feel bad for the kid. I really do, right? So it's that idea, though, that, that in a family, you, you bear the family resemblance, the resemblance of, of, of your parents. When, when God, our Father, is described as long-suffering, gracious, and patient, then we want as much as we can to resemble and bear those family characteristics of our Heavenly Father. So as we minister to one another, as we, as we admonish and as we encourage and as we help, well, we want to look like God when we do that, to be long-suffering and patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ, because that's the only way we can carry out verse 14 effectively. Notice, secondly, about this patience is that patience is a fruit of, of the Spirit. It's not something we can conjure up in our own effort, but you remember what Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience, right? This is God's work in us that enables us to be patient with one another, because at times we think, I don't think I can be patient anymore with these people, and God says, no, I've equipped you to do this through the work of the Spirit, and so you must lean on me to be patient with people. And so we must continue to come back to the well of God's grace that enables us to live in this way. And lastly, notice this about patience. It is the only means by which we can effectively minister over the long haul. Right? Talk to a couple who's been married for 50 or 60 years. And ask them how the marriage has survived so well for 50 to 60 years. And they will say it has taken persistent patience. That patience is, a, is a, an important aspect of making things survive and work. You know, the best things in life take patience. Anything in, in, in accomplishing, in, anything worth accomplishing in life takes persistent patience. I noticed that I was reading about a trend recently about how less and less individuals are playing the piano. And I, I can't say whether this is true or not. It was just something I was reading. But their observation was parents are less, hard, are less likely to for, these days to force their kids through the drudgery of the early stages of piano lessons so that they can get to the, the freedom where they can play extremely well. Because what happens is Basically, kids and parents lack the persistence and they lack the patience. And so what happens is they don't accomplish the fruit of all that persistence and patience. Right? So what we want as a congregation is we want the fruit of healthy relationships. We want the fruit of, of relationships that, that, that are thriving and that are, that are meaningful. But, but sometimes in order to accomplish those things, 
we have to go through the hard work of, of bearing with one another and being long-suffering and patient with one another. So it's no accident that Paul puts this phrase where he puts it. Okay? He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Oh, and by the way, it's only going to happen if you are patient with them all. So we can't be short-tempered in our dealings with people. We need to have the characteristics of our Heavenly Father and deal patiently. Now, as we close, let me give, let me give a couple thoughts here, just of an application. <laughs> we need to own this verse for ourselves. Okay? We have to be convinced in our own minds that, that I've got this responsibility of, of admonishing and of encouraging and of helping. Okay, so, so we've got to own this person, that, that this is the, the responsibility of every believer. But in doing that, I've come across two statements recently. I was talking to another pastor about this. One pastor used to say it this way. It's very, very tangible, practical. As you think about coming to, to worship the Lord together, he would say this, Come looking for God, leave looking for people. Okay, come looking for God, to worship God and to be with God, and leave looking for people. Now that's, that's good, but I think it's even more clarified by what my pastor friend says. This. He says, he, I started telling my congregation, I said, friends can wait. Friends can wait. Now, now what did he mean by this expression, friends can wait? Well, who are you most, most likely to gather with in the first five to ten minutes after the morning service. You're going to find your friend to converse with them, to touch base with them. Realistically, they'll be available all week. But friends can wait. There are many people in our midst who are weak, who are faint-hearted, and who are idle or unruly, who need the ministry of one another. So in that first five to seven minutes, he says, what I do is tell him, don't talk to people that you have relationships with and friendships with, but look among yourselves and seek out people that you can encourage and help and bring God's grace to in their lives. So come looking for God, leave looking for people, and come to the reality that friends can wait. So you and I have the responsibility, as we learn in this passage, as members of the body of Christ, to patiently build up our brothers and sisters in Christ according to their specific need. May God help us with this. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the wisdom of your word that so practically informs us of how we're, we are to interact with one another. But we know it's one thing to study it. It's a, it's a whole other task to put it into practice. So it's only by your grace that we can do this. So let us be convinced of you, the truth of your word, and have the grace and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to carry it out. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.